This episode is dedicated to Sean Gorman, Michael Lickey, Al, and Nixing Provog for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Matt. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have combat sports and political analyst, Matthew J. Hunter. Hi, Matt. Hey, Sam. How you doing? You know, purgatory, Groundhog Day, <laughs> repeating of the same week over and over, that kind of stuff. Yeah, man. When it hit the year mark, it was pretty crazy because um, I remember so many people saying on uh, three months or in six months, it'd be over. We're a year in, a year after, actually. And it's not going away. You know, I know Biden said at May 1st, I believe all age restrictions for the vaccine will be lifted. I'll wait and see, man. I'll wait and see what happens. Yeah. The rollout in California has been a mess and I feel real nervous about everything opening back up. I think starting today, um, we're recording on the first day in California where everything is supposed to open back up to limited capacity, but most of California is not vaccinated yet. So or they don't have like the full two doses, you know, like my grandmother, my mom got vaccinated, but only got the first dose, not the second dose yet. That's where we're at right now. Yeah, it's wild out there, man. Everyone be safe. Yeah. So let's talk about you a little bit and then get on to our main topic. But Matt, what happened first? Your interest in boxing or interest in MMA? You know, I got to say for like, it has to be probably a similar experience for anyone that's like lived past or is like grown up post the UFC creation, right? Like I was born in 1995. So I was born two years after the first UFC event. So I wasn't really remembering a thing till 2000, 2001. And I got to say that both sports were in the public zeitgeist already in some fashion. Um, especially being here in LA and growing up in LA, like Tito Ortiz was a regional star in Southern California in the early 2000s. And I don't think people like remember that, especially in today's contemporary Tito Ortiz uh, news cycle. 
Uh, but the guy was a legit star in this area. So I always knew Tito Ortiz. Obviously, that was the Oscar de la Hoya era, too. So I remember you know, Oscar fights. And it wasn't really a, a love for either or that led me to the other. It was sort of a simultaneous uh, fandom. Um, you know, I got to say my dad was definitely influential in like me getting into combat sports because he, uh, his grandfather was a huge Ali fan. So he grew up watching Ali fights as a kid. So obviously he showed me Ali clips and fights. And then, um, you know, Duran, obviously rest in peace to Marvin Hagler. My dad was a huge fan of those fighters, uh, in the late seventies and eighties, of course. Um, and you know, being a, a young kid, you know, Prince Nassim was like a huge fan favorite of me as a little kid. Like he was a flashy fighter. And I remember like watching clips online, like the early internet days of him and like his intros. And it was just fascinating. So there was always a connection to both sports. And I think that's particular for like my generation, anyone coming after me, you know, people born pre the UFC boom or even the UFC creation it's most likely they're a boxing fan that then fell in love with MMA, right? But I think a lot of people that were kids growing up in both eras, the Mayor the era, the UFC era, you couldn't help but watch both in some fashion. Maybe it is regional because I have seen a lot of people born after the UFC era. They tend to only like MMA or UFC. And actually only recently, maybe because of Floyd versus Connor, that they started getting into boxing at all. Yeah, it's, 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 that's probably the case, especially, you know, um, being LA, I mean, you are in a fight town, like I'm in a fight town. So like, it's always been a boxing town predominantly, but anyone that is from the LA area, they know that it quickly became a MMA hotbed as well with, you know, a lot of Brazilian expats coming here, the Gracie family being here, you couldn't help, but like have a natural fusion of the two in some fashion. Um, and I, I, it's probably region specific, you know, I bet, you know, places like New York, it's still predominantly boxing-centric for a very long time, of course, uh, comparative to other areas. I think another reason why boxing has gotten so popular amongst the younger fans who started out with only MMA is because of YouTube and how UFC, like it was like one year overnight, all the UFC highlights, all the UFC videos, and all the people who were making UFC MMA content, all their videos got taken down. Yep. A lot of these even MMA analysts, they just moved over to boxing. And uh, I mean, I know boxing, a lot of stuff gets taken down still, but not nearly at the same clip as UFC stuff. So I would say combat sports wise, YouTube became a big boon for boxing because boxing could survive on YouTube. And also there's fewer paywalls for boxing, meaning you could watch it on YouTube or you could watch it just from having cable TV, whereas MMA just went behind UFC fight pass and ESPN paywalls that made it even more difficult to watch. Like, for example, like uh, when the start of the, the pandemic and the quarantine, uh, I thought for, you know, my subscribers and listeners, I'd make a YouTube playlist on our channel of all like classic boxing fights. So you can go on like my YouTube page, Mixed Combat Radio, and find a huge playlist of just fights and documentaries that people just uploaded. You know, they're clearly not you know, uploaded by ESPN or HBO or Top Rank. They're just uploaded by a people and no one's taking them down. And these are legendary fights, you know, throughout 120 years of history that are largely up for public domain in some fashion, even though they're not really public domain. Um, they just get treated that way. Um, it, that, that is an uh, interesting take. I never really looked at it that way, Sam, that uh, YouTube and online has allowed like the piracy of boxing in some fashion. 
And that has generated a, a, a sort of a younger fan base in the sport when the UFC has always, and MMA as a whole has always treated the online fan base as like the like redheaded stepchild of the industry. And it's just weird. Well, it's kind of like comparing the mafia to a uh, corporate cartel. Mafia can be bad, but a corporate cartel with all their intellectual property laws can be just so much more powerful globally. Absolutely. I think that's a good comparison. Yes. So then do you have a preference as far as what you like watching these days? Do you like watching boxing more or uh, MMA more or would you say they're equal? It's it goes back and forth. You know, I would say that it's like matchup specific, right? Um, like, obviously, we had Estrada versus uh, Roman Gonzalez this last weekend. I was highly uh, uh, intrigued by that fight. I still think it's probably the best fight in the last few years that we just saw. Um, but the just the weekend prior, we had Adesano versus uh, Blackwitz, and I was absolutely enthused and excited about that fight. So it's very matchup oriented. Um, I would say just from my own career, I've definitely covered a lot more boxing. It's been far more um, uh, accessible to cover and to report on. And plus, I just got my like big break, air quotes, in the media sphere through a boxing outlet, not through an MMA outlet. And anytime I try to... Um, uh, pitch ideas to do both MMA and boxing related content, it was always shut down. So I just always kind of stuck in that role for a long time until I got with uh, Sherdar.com for about a year and that opened the doors up. As far as communities go, which community do you prefer? They're very different communities. I will say that. They're very different communities. You would think they're the same, but they're not. And there is some crossover. Like the the inherent love of like insane conspiracy theories like QAnon, like all that. Um, that is, I think, uh, for some reason, applicable to both fan bases. There's some stuff like that that's very much applicable. Um, but obviously, the, the, the MA fan base is far more um, uh, of a white fan base in the U.S., let's be honest, while boxing is a far more multi-ethnic fan base. It's very different. The, the makeup is far more... Um, ethnically uh, tribal and factional in terms of boxing while MMA it's more of a it's still factional but not in the same way like it's 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 quite it's more homogenous in that sense um i would say in terms of like pure entertainment like the, uh, the MMA community is on twitter is probably more entertaining than the boxing <laughs> community how do you define entertaining oh man i don't know um just wild takes or wild takes. Um, also the, the, like there are some like legit, like good and funny people on MMA Twitter. So shout out to all of you people out there because you guys are awesome. Uh, in boxing Twitter, you, it's harder to find those people to be quite honest. Um, boxing, you get a lot more of like the low lives, like the, <laughs> like the scummy media people. Like it's just a, it's like that cantina scene in star Wars, you know, like it's just a different, ecosystem completely it's the wild west of combat sports still to this day but mma it has this shine of polish around it that is uh to me humorous at times because it's clearly a facade but a lot of fans a lot of people on twitter think that that's le like a legit real um factor of their sport they're like mainstream that they're um they're not the wild west they're not combat sports and combat sports are inherently scummy in nature we have to be real about that I think that's starting to change because of gambling. When I think of boxing Twitter, I see a lot more gamblers talking about it or 
you know, a lot of the conversations aren't just about who you think will win. It's like who you have money on. But now if you watch a UFC broadcast, they have a whole segment dedicated to gambling. <laughs> they bring on these random gambling people to give you odds. And throughout the fight, they keep posting the odds, the live odds and tweets about gambling. So I think MMA will also become kind of that scummy cantina. Well, like I, to use your uh, comparison earlier about uh, corporate cartels um, versus like a, a drug empire, right? Like an illegal drug empire. Um, the UFC is like a corporate cartel. Like it is a multi billion dollar company its presence as a brand is just monumental comparative to any boxing outfit whether it's top rank promotions whether it's pbc or matchroom like it's just stratospheres of difference between what they can do um and i think for a lot of people in the mma community they connect the monopolization of the ufc with mma with it be being a legitimate sporting entity and it's not the case and i i like i can imagine a day where like let's say like the mma uh Muhammad ali act uh, gets passed right and you see a breaking up of the ufc in some fashion see sanctioning bodies be introduced and that takes away from the monopolization of the ufc it would be interesting to see how the ufc reacts as a corporate cartel to that threat in its market space because that will happen at some point like the ufc's dominance as a monopoly or monopsony power in the market will like die at one point like even if it's another like capitalist entity that comes in and overtakes them like it's like that's just the law of this economic system like it is pure competition and they've been lucky to win so far but they're not going to win forever like they're not disney they don't have that branding like even though that they're attached to in some fashion but it's still not fucking disney we even see that with pro wrestling where we thought nothing could challenge WWE because they started buying everything up and then AEW showed up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's going to happen someday to the U.S. market for the UFC, whether it be through legis uh, legislation from the government breaking them up in some fashion or outside entities coming in and overtaking them in the market uh, space. It's yet to be determined, of course, but their dominance will come to an end at some point. But they're going to react highly aggressive in terms of trying to keep their assets on, uh, under house. And it's going to be a, you know, air quotes, violent, a hostile takeover when that happens. Uh, you're going to see, uh, you know, like you said, scummy business uh, dealings. You're going to see the cantina aspect of MMA really come out when that takes place. What do you think about the quality of MMA commentary versus boxing commentary during a broadcast? I think the the gold standard of commentary to this day is still probably the Showtime commentary booth for boxing. Um, it's been that way for a few years, in my opinion, if not like close to a decade. Um, the UFC's commentary team, even with I think the justifiable criticisms that they uh, that are laid against them, they're still better than a lot of the other boxing commentary teams. <laughs> like I'm like I you know I love boxing, but oh man, the DAZN commentary team with Todd Grisham and Sergio Mora. Mm, man, it's not it's not the best, man. It is a rough, rough time through that uh, telecast. And, like, I love PBC, but PBC's commentary team is not the greatest. Uh, you know, I think um, uh, uh, Joe Goosen is a, a probably the best part of that commentary team, but Lennox Lewis is not that great. Whenever they have Ray Mancini on, he's not that great. Um, you know, Brian Kenny... He's Brian Kenny, 
<laughs> and then even the ESPN commentary team, like I think Tim Bradley, Andre Ward. Well, one Tim Bradley is the like ultimate company man. So like the like we're talking about like bias on a commentary team. Like Tim Bradley is probably the most biased commentator I've ever heard. Andre Ward manages a lot of the fighters on those telecasts. And they've only recently made him stop being a commentator during those fights because of the conflict of interest. Um, so there's massive issues with boxing's commentary team. Even like if you want to go like a few years ago before like the breakup of HBO and Top Rank, where just HBO and Showtime sort of owning the landscape. Jim Lampley was a true company man. Like he really was. Like so my biased commentary, Jim Lampley was the archetype of that in a lot of ways. Um, so I think across the board, there's a lot of issues with the combat sports commentary with conflict of, conflicts of interest, with, with biases. Um, I do think that the UFC does have some newer talent, obviously not named Joe Rogan, <laughs> that uh, are really good. Like I think John Anik has come into his own. Um, I think Michael Bisming has been amazing thus far. Paul Felder's pretty good. Paul Felder's pretty great as well. I mean, there's they're clearly uh, better at at getting talent on the mic than a lot of these boxing promoters or adjacent networks. Now let's get into politics a little bit. How did you come to radical politics? Ah, oh, man, a long, long road. Um, like I think anyone in the Imperial Corps, and born in it, of course, it's very hard to see outside of that worldview unless someone shows it to you and i didn't have anyone show me anything other than like a republican democrat dichotomy uh you know i was uh, born in a christian conservative household so fox news was definitely the news channel of choice i didn't get anything outside of that till honestly i was like 15 or 16 <laughs> I thought you were going to say like in your 20s or something. No, 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 no. 15 or 16 is still pretty early. It is. I'm relatively speaking, of course. Yes, yes, it is. Um, but I remember I was in AP European history for those that are listening outside of the US. AP classes in high school are for college credit. Um, so I was taking this AP European history class and the teacher was from Canada. And shout out to Mrs. Kors. She's awesome, man. Shout out to her, a lovely individual. And she was obviously from Canada. Um, supportive of socialized medicine and this was 2010 2011 so this is peak obamacare debate era right like this is this is it um and so she was always sort of just throwing little barbs out there of of hints right uh, of her political ideology and then we eventually read the communist manifesto in that class and i went to a christian conservative republican school okay <laughs> Like it, it was so conservative that uh, it was founded by predominantly Dutch families. And we had a saying in the school for generations that if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. It was that bad. Like it was that pro-white, that like white supremacist built in. It was awful. And we had this teacher from Canada uh, showing us the Communist Manifesto. Amazing. And I remember being really enthralled by it. Um, it took me a, a few years later to really get it, to be quite honest. It took me until college to kind of for it to sink in, for me to really contextualize what that text was. I just remember it being such a call for revolution. And I was always a history nerd. And revolutions are obviously been a, a um, key points in history. So it just made a lot of sense. And it just seemed like a very logical document. Uh, very radical, too, but very logical. And then in college, I took a political philosophy course with a professor named Orozco. His name was Professor Orozco. I forget his first name. Uh, in Oregon State. And we read everything, of course. So, I mean, 
from Marcus Aquinas, Thomas Hobbes, Aristotle, Marx again, of course, Ayn Rand. Like we read everything. And that got me really um, intrigued or uh, invested into political philosophies and wanting to know more about them. And this is 2014 or 15 now. So this is the beginning of the election cycle that would give us Donald Trump. So obviously, it was just a naturally radicalizing time, I would say. And since then, um, you know, I would say that I went down the the TYT majority report to communist pipeline. That's how I would call it. Um, you know, because naturally, I'm on social media. I'm trying to find news sources that are giving things that I want to hear. And the biggest one, especially back then, obviously, and still to this day, is probably TYT in terms of giving some sort of quasi-progressive news and obviously massive issues with TYT even to this day. But there's still a pipeline to other leftist outlets. And then I found Majority Report and the late Michael Brooks, who was absolutely influential uh, in my further radicalization. Um, I cannot you know, stress enough that if anyone listening right now does, do not know who Michael Brooks is, read some of his books, uh, watch some of his videos on YouTube. Like The guy was an amazing, amazing person. Um, and he passed away last year, tragically. Um, and that led me to everything, like honestly, like anything in the sun, under the sun of communism, anarchism, socialism, whatever it may be. Um, and I've just been reading. I know you can't see it, Sam, but I have towers of books. You know, I'm writing uh, a book that should be the uh, uh, one of the um, complete histories of like leftist ideology. So anything from anarchism, socialism, and communism i want it to be the complete history of all of those ideologies so i'm I'm writing that right now i'm in the process of that um and like i think most people you know like if you've lived through the last 10 to 12 years from from 2007 and 8 on you cannot help but be radicalized you just either get radicalized one way or the other you cannot be in the middle and i just went one way you know luckily i went the right way or the left way you should say um (laughs) But yeah, that's my political journey, I would say. Then switching gears back to boxing then, who are some of your favorite boxers? Ah, man. So I mentioned Prince Nassim for sure. Um, I mean, I still like, he was like the first guy I showed my kid. Like when I, like my kid was, you know, four or five years old and I showed him my highlights of boxing. I showed him Prince Nassim highlights first. Uh, you know, like I always love uh, the Prince. Man, my, my kid calls him the king. I don't know why, but that's my kid. Uh, obviously, like grew up with like Ali being heavily influenced. Like I have an Ali painting behind me, you know. Um, That's funny that you grew up in a conservative household, yet your dad, you said, was a big boxing Ali fan. Yeah, my my family was weird, you know. Like it was definitely if I had to classify as more of the libertarian conservative ideology that I grew up with. Um, but that's not uncommon with Ali, where a lot of conservative people. I mean, not in his era, I would say. But today, uh, there's a lot of people who are like a little bit after uh, Muhammad Ali's era, where they're like in their 40s or 50s, who they themselves grew up conservative and they are still conservative, but they like Ali if they're a boxing fan. And, you know, the 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 men in my family, like the the older generation, like my, my, my grandfathers, my great grandfathers, um, they're all union men, right? Like they're all union workers. Um, my parents weren't. You know, because obviously the generational gap, you know, they graduated like 80, 81, maybe I think it's when they graduated high school. So they enter the workforce post the neoliberal 
boom of the 70s that destroyed unions. And, you know, m- most of the men in my family have passed away, unfortunately, now. But I do wonder, like, in the time, were they actually, you know, progressive or leftist in some fashion because they were union workers back then? And my parents, who weren't union, didn't grow up with that mentality for some reason, had that disconnect in ideology. Um, it's just curious because there is that generational gap with, you know, boomers and the silent generation or the, or the greatest generation or whatever. Like, the generations that were unionized most likely had more progressive politics. The generation that is largely ununionized, the boomers, unfortunately, had very reactionary politics. They talk about that, how a lot of today's conservative boomers had red grandparents and red, not meaning red as in Republican, but red as in the leftist red. Yes, yes, absolutely. Like thinking about Kamala Harris or people like that, you know, they have like super socialist or communist like professor parents and they're like just neoliberal politicians. Now let's get into our main topic of discussion, which is the top 10 biggest scandals and rumors in boxing history. With boxing's history of corruption, racism, and organized crime, there's probably a lot to choose from. This is also a topic you've spent some time thinking about. I actually did a video on it. Uh, I did the top five scandals. We're doing the top 10, so your listeners get a little bit extra. Um, I did the top five maybe last year, maybe the year before. and it, it was a fun uh, research to to do because, like you said, man, boxing is a very long, sordid history uh, of of crime, uh, mafia influence, uh, of just pure uh, voluntary corruption. Like I've always said this uh, on my show that like boxing is like the perfect air quotes perfect distillation of capitalism. Like if you want to understand capitalism, understand boxing. Okay, and understand like the croniness of it that's just naturally embedded in the system. Uh, because even like, in, like, think about like all the regulation and try to like band aids to the system of boxing that has been throughout this history, it hasn't worked, you know. Like, uh, like some of these stories I'm gonna get to, they're modern day stories, unfortunately. Like I said earlier, with gambling coming into MMA now, um, more and more, I think a lot of those kind of questionable things where you wonder if organized crime was involved or gamblers were involved, I think we're going to see a lot more of that now where you're like, did that guy like really get knocked out or what, what happened there? You know, especially because they get paid so little. I even wrote an article about this, but some people are getting 5,000 to fight 5,000 to win. You put maybe a thousand or 2000 against yourself because you, maybe you're like a huge favorite over somebody else. And that 2000 can earn you 30000 if you throw the fight. So you don't even need organized crime or somebody to come in and tell you to take a dive. You could just set it up yourself as an independent gambling contractor, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and even like, I got to say this, like, f- for those that like are unaware, like most small time promotions are just um, money laundering systems, to be quite honest, for organized crime, even to this day. For both boxing and MMA? I don't know about MMA per se, but I can speak only for boxing. Um, I, I know this, uh, you know, I can't say names or anything like that, but I know this, that, you know, it is to this day used as money laundering for, you know, drug empires, for drug businesses, and even some that are legal, like in today's age, right? Like I, I, I'm, there's a lot of small time promoters that have like a legal weed business that actually funds their, uh, um, uh, promotional company nowadays like that's not uncommon actually um and 
you know, people think of this corruption and the, the, the mafia connections of boxing as this far gone past of the sport, but it's very much a contemporary issue. You know, think about Daniel Kinahan uh, with the Kinahan cartel in Ireland, which is a billion dollar uh, drug empire, which is now pretty much uh, centered in Dubai and the UAE due to being forced out of Ireland, forced out of the UK, forced out of Spain. And Daniel Kinahan has been now confirmed to be making deals for like Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, which was just announced today. You know, Daniel Kinahan is involved with that, explicitly involved with that. He has said it, Tyson Fury has said it, Bob Arum has said it. Everyone says this drug cartel leader who's hiding uh, in Dubai is the one making the biggest fight in the sport. You know, it's still happening in, in some crazy fashion. I think people need to realize that. Like, it's not history, unfortunately. Even though some of it is history, it's very much um, relatable to today's events. So then let's work our way through the list, starting with number 10. Number 10, Roy Jones Jr. and uh, the Olympic gold medal controversy. Um, for those who don't remember or for didn't live it like me, you have to research it. In 1988, Roy Jones Jr. was the amateur prospect in the sport. Like not just in America, in the sport. Like It's Roy Jones Jr. For anyone that knows boxing knows the name Roy Jones Jr. Or at least have heard his rap songs. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, everyone thought he was going to win the gold medal in the 1988 Olympics um, in Seoul, South Korea. He was facing a, a, a South Korean fighter um, by the name of, I, I might mispronounce it, I apologize, uh, Park Si Hun, um, who was 32 years old at the time. And Roy Jones lost the decision. And everyone and their mother knows that Roy Jones did not lose that fight. He lost it via 3-2 decision. Uh, and the, Olymp the International Olympic Committee actually launched a full investigation into it, suspended all three judges who voted or uh, who picked against Roy Jones in the decision. And they found out and discovered that all three of those judges were wined and dined before the event by South Korean officials. Um, and this led to a whole changing of the scoring system. This led to basically the AIBA, which for a long time and still to this day kind of is the lead amateur uh, boxing organization. They, they're the, the organization that helps the Olympics with their uh, boxing program. This was a huge scandal for them at the time because it was found out that obviously those South Korean officials were AIBA officials. Uh, so it was just a first around the first big uh, uh, scandals for for international amateur boxing that has kept up to this day. Obviously, the AIBA was found out with massive corruption charges. I want to say in 2016. I correct me if I'm wrong on that date. Shakur Stevenson's uh, gold medal match, where he, which he lost, is under a lot of debate whether that was um due to something like this as well so there's been long running issues with the aiba which is quasi still involved with the ioc they've tried to boot uh, out the aiba but have kind of just failed at that um so most likely whenever we get the olympics again the aiba will be involved again um but i, I sort of wrapping it up th this was an encapsulation of the inherent corruption in the amateur boxing system. Then what is number nine? The, the tragic passing away of uh, Benny uh, Parrott uh, in 
1962, uh, Emil Griffith and Benny the Kid Barrett obviously had a huge rivalry in the late 50s and early 60s, um, and they fought on ABC, you know, main mainstream ABC, uh, MSG, and it was a competitive fight until Griffith knocked out Barrett uh, along the ropes, uh, and it was a brutal knockout. I mean, you can actually watch the fight to this day, actually. It's on YouTube. It's on that playlist I made. Um, and it was actually a really great documentary called The Ring of Fire. If you want to ever see a documentary about boxing, this is a great documentary about the sport, Ring of Fire. It's on YouTube as well. Um, and Barrett got hit with basically 20 punch barrage on the ropes and he was knocked out standing up. It was horrendous. Um, as a result, basically all of the networks, the mainstream networks, you know, ABC, NBC, uh, and CBS at the time, because, you know, we didn't have Fox back then. Um, they stopped showing boxing and we didn't get boxed until Ali and Frazier. So there was a massive gap in the sport in sort of the mid-60s on mainstream television because of this tragic death. Um, and it just led to overall, like, you know, referees being more safety conscious. That's why, like, we've seen, like, nowadays, like, refs stopping fighters before they're never knocked down in boxing. They're just m- much more of a safety conscious mentality with refing. This is one of those key moments, tragically, that led to us being more safety conscious. What's number eight? Number eight, uh, uh, unfortunately, another tragic death, Ray Mancini versus Duke Kim. Um, 1982, uh, uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, always a fun fighter, uh, was fighting Duke Kim for the WBA lightweight title. Uh, both guys were well-experienced. Uh, unfortunately, um, it, got, it was, became a very ugly war. It was. It was a brutal fight. And uh, in the 14th round, um, Kim was knocked out. And he eventually passed away a few days later, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Ray Mancini was never the same. And this led to us changing from 15-round title fights to 12-round title fights, which we have to this day. Um, so it was obviously a tragic event, but one that did lead to a seismic shift in the sport. And for people who don't know about Korean boxers or the Korean style of boxing, is an emphasis on offense what not a lot of emphasis on defense. So that's the whole reason why people love Korean boxers is because of their blood and gut style. And actually, you still see that with Korean MMA fighters where, you know, I could understand Korean and I could hear their corner saying zero about defense or head movement. Whenever th- their guy gets hit, <laughs> they're like, you got to hit him back two times for every one time you get hit. Especially in like box and I, you know, I can't speak for MMA, uh, but like, the the reputation that Asian fighters get is really commendable and, and, and high. And it's comparative to like the Mexican fighters and how they are lauded for their aggression. Like think about like Japanese boxers or Thai boxers. They're always lauded for their aggression, um, their tenacity, you know, their their will to fight. Um and, and it it does seem like it, you know, I can't speak for it, you know, maybe you can speak for it. Um uh, that comes from that real, you know, martial arts ethos that is natural there that's not natural here in america you know what i mean i don't know how it developed but i think a lot of their strategy is based around just winning on offense and volume let's move on to number seven mike prez and uh magomed abedasolov sorry i mispronounced that last name um there was a fight in 2000 wait was it 14 i want to say and in new york and Mike Perez and Magomed went to war. It was a great fight. And 
what happened after the fact has led to a lot of controversy, a lot of change in the New York State Commission. What happened is that uh, Magomed basically collapsed after the fight and was not rushed to the hospital. He was not given medical treatment. Um, he was told by the commission to get in a taxi to go to the hospital. And he ended up having, obviously, massive brain bleeds, uh, being in an induced coma, and has survived, fortunately, um, but has obviously been affected drastically from that and has never been the same and will never fight again and has only recently, I think, been able to walk again. So it's it's amazing to see the 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 comeback of his just well-being and life for Magomed, who's been taken care of really well by Lou DiBella uh, and uh, his family as well. Uh, but what this has been called for is uh, called Mago's Law uh, by the name of uh, a lawyer named Paul Edelstein, who's the lawyer for uh, Magomed. And it's basically calling for a comprehensive neurological evaluation before and after fights, stuff that you would think is common sense, yeah, but isn't. Um, guaranteed medical transportation to hospitals, stuff like this that wasn't being done. It's still being... Um, litigated in some fashion, still being worked through the legislative process, this law. But the New York Commission ended up basically removing their head commissioner as a result. Um, There was a report from the New York Office and Inspector General uh, that found out that the head uh, commissioner, Thomas Hoover was his name, he was the chairman, he gave access uh, to jobs and positions at this fight and overall in the commission to his friends, his <laughs> business partners, and overall just nepotism as well. So it just led to this microscope on the New York Commission for corruption. And to connect to like MMA as well, like this happened right before the adoption of MMA with the New York Commission. And I would argue that that was done as a PR stunt in some fashion. That the New York Commission, the New York State allowed MMA to try to k- get the overall sporting media and fan base paying attention to a big UFC event instead of this corruption charges and investigation by the Inspector General. It's all happened around the same time. Um, luckily, though, the New York Commission has like enacted on their own since this a lot of these measures within the MAGO law already. Uh, but hopefully we see this get passed. We see there's been calls for uh, a national law to some degree of this nature uh, to force commissions and force all states to do this for combat sports um, yet to be determined, but potentially a massive event that has seismic shifts for the entire sport in the U.S. What about number six? Uh, number six, uh, Louis Resto, Billy Collins Jr., illegal gloves, and obviously the murder of Billy Collins. Uh, Billy Collins was a massive up-and-coming prospect in the junior middleweight division. Louis Resto was a top-20-ish journeyman, uh, never really the heaviest hitter, but developed some hard-hitting ability later on in his career, and we found out why is because uh, he basically plastered his gloves uh, and that uh, allowed him to hit his opponent harder and eventually kill Billy Collins. And this was only found out after the fact. Billy Collins died after the fight as well. Some days later, he collapsed after the fight. Billy Collins Sr., who was the father of, obviously, the fighter and his trainer, 
he felt Luis Resto's gloves after the fight and like it felt like there was no padding. It felt like something was wrong. Resto ended up even admitting years later uh, that his hand wraps were wrapped in uh, a plaster called Paris, plaster of Paris. Um, the substance that like hardens plaster into a cast. Um, and Collins uh, became, you know, basically was drinking heavily, uh, had some brain issues as well. Uh, and then he drove his car into a wall and committed suicide um, as a result of this. Um, Russell's trainer, who was a famed trainer before the fight, Panama Lewis, he was banned from the sport forever. Um, Resto served time in prison, actually two and a half years. But didn't Panama Lewis, even though he's banned from actually being in the ring or in the corner, still ended up working with fighters in some capacity? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he was paid, you know, under the table, air quotes, you know, he wasn't ever at events, but he trained fighters at gyms, of course. So he definitely got paid as a result. He never really left the sport. He just wasn't really allowed at events, to be quite honest. Um, it just, you know, it was around the same time as uh, Ray Mancini and Duco Kim. It was a weird period where there was a lot of deaths, unfortunately, in the sport. And you add that with, you know, just a few years later, the Tyson era, which was a advertiser nightmare, to be quite honest. You can probably combine these all with just the the leading to like the dark age of boxing, so to speak, where um, basic cable pulled all uh, televi- televising of the sport, ESPN pulled televising the sport for a long time as well. Um, all of these events, I think, sort of culminate in that as well. And there's a good documentary about this called Assault in the Ring. Yes, yes, it is. And I think even in that documentary, Panama Lewis was still working with Zab Judah. He yes. just couldn't be in the corner, couldn't go to the event, but he was there at the press conference. <laughs> you saw him in like the training videos at the gym helping. So the movie did a good job about how, even though Lewis supposedly was the mastermind behind this, it ended up being the fighter who took the full brunt of the punishment. Yes, absolutely. Because Resto served time. Like Panama Lewis never served time. He still got checks after the fact. Like Resto's career was ruined. And it should have been, like, to be honest, it should have been. But so Panama Lewis's career should have been ruined as well, and it wasn't. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Let's move on to the last half of this, number five. Number five. Uh, and again, all these I did on the video on my YouTube channel. So if you want to see anything more in depth, I do recommend it. Or just, you know, visual aids with them as well. Um, number five, Shane Mosley and the Balco scandal. Um, obviously, in 2003, uh, Shane Mosley testified in the Balco trials that he used EPO in a sacrifice Oscar De La Hoya. He never popped. He never tested dirty. But he admitted in court uh, in, in front of a federal jury that he used EPO. And the mastermind of Balco was Victor Conti. Victor Conti 
Um, you know, I think, you know, mainstream sports fans understand Balco with connections like Barry Bond, Sammy Sosa, and, you know, the, that age of baseball. But obviously it was uh, in bed with boxers as well. And Victor Conte, after he got out of jail from that, what did he do? He formed the snack system. And the snack system, I uh, just want to make this point as well, that when Victor Conte got out of jail, he bought himself a Jaguar um, immediately, like the car. Like he, he bought that the day he got out of jail and then formed the, the snack system the day he got out of jail. Just want to point out that little factoid. Um, the snack system has been a long time now and a major sponsorship, uh, a supplement sponsorship to boxers. And there's always been rumors and claims of Victor Conte still obviously giving fighters illegal substances and, ban- uh, and performance-enhancing drugs. He even talks about it to this day that he knows of substances that don't get tested for, that he can get away, he can get uh, ways out of uh, around tests and such. So he's admitted that he even still knows ways to do it. Um, and major fighters are linked with snack system, like Mikey Garcia. Um, I think the Charlo brothers are linked to the snack system as well. There's a lot of fighters that have linked them just recently as well, and. It's just a sign of, you know, illegal uh, form sensing use in the sport, how it's really not dealt with, uh, and honestly gets encouraged because Victor Conte is welcomed all over the sport and is not treated like a pariah at all. And in boxing, the testing is done just by the commissions, right? It's not like in MMA where USADA does it. You do have uh, per fight VADA testing. So you will have like, let's say like Canelo or like, Anthony Joshua will sign up to like individual VADA testing for a fight. That does happen. Um, the WBC did announce they have a VADA program. But I forget the number it came out to. It was an abysmal number for the amount of money in this program. It like honestly, like I I think I I'm not joking. I want to say it was like it was forty dollars was the budget per fighter sanctioned by the WBC per month for testing. <laughs> like that's what like it allotted out to on the average, right? It was forty dollars per person. I think it was like a um, hundred grand a month was the budget. And even with the big time fights, the VADA testing is voluntary for people who are listening at home. Nobody's forcing them to. It was just something they decided upon and put it into the contract. You do have UCAD in the UK, which is a national uh, agency, which is under the Water Code. Uh, they do extra testing. Uh, and I, the, the, I believe that uh, they do additional VADA testing as well in the UCAT system. But there's also been a lot of rumors and claims of corruption within UCAD and the British Boxing Board of Control. The Dylan White situation just a few years ago uh, was a prime indicator of that. Uh, for anyone that wants to understand that, just type in Dylan White, PDs, and UCAD, UKAD on Google. Read some articles into it. Um, it's yeah, to be determined. I, I really don't have a firm opinion on that. Um, but again, drug testing, or I should say the use of PEDs is not a scarlet letter on any fighter's name. And if you're a producer and distributor of it, it's definitely not. And you actually probably get encouraged and you get cars from boxing promoters after you get out of jail. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they bring in uh, Victor Conti to give opinions about people who bust hot in MMA now. Like, oh, look at him. He's the expert. And I think he's appeared on Joe Rogan as well. So he's become a celebrity. Yeah, he absolutely has, man. Like, 
I'm telling you this, he makes way more money with a snack system now than with Balco in the late nineties and early two thousands, way more because it's legit now it's or air quotes legit. So he has this veneer of a responsible businessman and like that allows him to get through doors when before he probably couldn't. What is number four? Frankie Carbo and the mob rule in boxing. Um, I think a lot of people probably uh, know the name Blinky Palermo in the boxing world. At least I've heard that name. Um, if they haven't, that's another name to pay attention to. Uh, Frankie Carbo, though, was probably the guy that ran uh, the sport from like the nineteen late 1940s, 1950s, and even to the early 1960s, allegedly. Um, part of the Murder, Inc. with uh, Bugsy Siegel back in the day. I mean, a... The rap, the rap sheet on this guy's a lot in terms of murder, extortion, bribery, torture, rape, all that fun stuff. And obviously came up in the bootlegger era. But Frankie Carbo, uh, I think it was called like the czar of boxing, I want to say was his nickname. Um, and he ran like Jake LaMotta's career, Sonny Liston. So when you hear about like Jake LaMotta taking a dive, when you hear about Sonny Liston and Ollie and the Phantom Punch, and was that a dive? Those are big scandals, but they all link back to this one individual scandal, which is Frankie Carbo. Um, and HannibalBoxing.com, which is a really good website, they do long-form articles, they have a great piece on Frankie Carbo that I really recommend. Just type in Frankie Carbo uh, uh, Boxing on Google, and you can read the full article. It's a long article, but it's 100% worth it. Um, this guy ran everything and specifically the the welterweight and middleweight divisions which were some of the money divisions at the time um and he eventually funny enough um was called in to congress to basically testify against the mafia and boxing and i think for a long time it was the record for the most time someone plead the fifth in a congressional hearing I forget how many times, I want to say it was 25 times he pleaded the fifth in that congressional hearing. Uh, and you can watch it to this day. It's actually rather entertaining, to be quite honest. Uh, he served time on, on Rikers Island, uh, and I think he served a little bit of time in Alcatraz as well. Um, the, the very infamous uh, and heavily connected. Um, but yes, that, that's number four. And the mob rule in boxing is really encapsulated with Frankie Carbo. Um, if you want to, if you remember like Raging Bull, for example, about Jake LaMotta, Robert De Niro, right? There's that scene where uh, Joe Pesci is in the club and he's like meeting with the mob, right? And he's trying to like not have his, not have Jake LaMotta take a dive. Mm -hmm. I forget which actor it is, but one of them is Frankie Carbo. One of them is playing Frankie Carbo. I believe he doesn't get lines in the movie though. Um, but this guy has been a figure for a long, long time. He's, uh, weirdly enough, inaccurately put in the Roberto Duran movie that came out a few years ago. Um, I forget the guy that played him. Weirdly enough, I remember him from Transformers. I, <laughs> I feel like that's awful. Uh, but he played Frankie Carbo, even though Frankie Carbo at that time was definitely out of the game and no longer involved. What's number three? Muhammad Ali being banned from boxing. I think this is probably one of the most infamous scandals, if not the most uh, well-known scandal, I should say. Uh, Muhammad Ali was obviously an undefeated heavyweight fighter at the time, world champion in 1967. Um, and, of, you know, even at this point, a lightning rod of um, 
polarization. Um, you know, he was already fl- flirting with the NOI uh, and, and, and Malcolm X and just radicalization of politics as a whole. And obviously you had the Vietnam War at the time and he was vehemently against the Vietnam War and he was drafted uh, in uh, April 28th, 1967. Um, he refused to step forward in the draft and the New York State Commission uh, revoked his license uh, before he was even convicted, before the trial had even started. I believe they were just in the pre-trial process and they already revoked his license. Um, and obviously every commission after the fact follows suit, especially at that time, the New York commission ruled the sport, even on an international scale, the New York commission ran boxing from a, from a, uh, regulatory perspective. Um, so every commission blackballed Muhammad Ali and we lost three years of his prime, like to, to put it in comparison, you know, like Sugar Ray Leonard defeated Roberto Duran and Tommy Hearns within the same age gap that Muhammad Ali lost. You know, Roy Jones gave uh, James Tony his first loss, defeat Mike McCollum uh, in the same time period that Muhammad Ali didn't get because he was in jail or, or dealing with the, the trial uh, or couldn't fight because you're just blackballed. Uh, it, it's, just, it's truly a, a case of how boxing and politics cannot be disconnected. I know so many people in boxing want to disconnect politics from the sport. And same with obviously MMA as well. I mean, you know that. And they just can't. Like they're, they are intrinsically linked in some fashion. Um, and especially when you talk about racism, when you talk about white supremacy, when you talk about imperialism as well, boxing is a tool for the ruling class just as much as other things. And I think people really forget that. Um, you know, there's a reason why, you know, like Roman Gonzalez fought last uh, a few days ago, right? Wearing the Sandinista flag, sporting a Daniel Ortega shirt, and there's like no mention of that. There's no mention of anything like that on the telecast. Why? Because probably A, those commentators are too stupid to know what that those symbols are. Uh or B, that like they're just told not to. Like that sort of context in the fighter's history and who that person is can't be talked about. You know? Um sports and politics are linked in a lot of ways. You know, um the the bread and circus that it is that that the bourgeois give us because that's what it is to be honest about it. even though we love them like i love sports i love boxing but it's absolutely bread and circus uh to the masses from the ruling class we have to be aware when like certain fighters fight that trend and we have to be very supportive of those fighters because there are a few you know they're not a lot unfortunately but there are a few fighters that do speak up against the tools of oppression that even they face, that they are a part of. Um, and Muhammad Ali was obviously the best at that. He spoke out against the oppression of not only, obviously, boxing, but the world of the U.S. empire in ways that no other fighter can come close to and no other fighter has attempted to. Uh, and obviously, that's why he was blacklisted the way he was. What's number two? Don King... And the Ring Magazine bribery scandal. Don King obviously is a longtime boxing promoter, 
promote Ali fights even, unfortunately, you know, um, guy's been around for a very long time and still around. I don't know how, but he's still around. Uh, he sees opportunity, uh, in 1967 to start this tournament that was supposed to promote, uh, us fighters. It's called the United States boxing championships. Um, and he signed up like basically the entire Olympic team at the time. And that was a, the star studded Olympic team. They just won five gold medals. Um, and what he did basically is that he bought the rankings of the ring magazine at the time. The ring magazine were the ranking bodies in some fashion at the time. Um, they were the news outlet for boxing forever and still are in some fashion. But this was the first case of them being susceptible, or at least us being us knowingly, uh, us knowing that the ring magazine is susceptible to promoter corruption. And he bought the rankings. And what he did in this tournament is he matched up all these star-studded prospects with jobbers, no-namers, guys that were not going to win. And in order to legitimize the, the tournament and to get it televised by ABC, he had to get them ranked. So he bought the ring magazine rankings, uh, and that all came out. The journalist that exposed this, his name was Alex Walu or Walu. I might be mispronouncing that. Uh, he was like an associate producer at ABC Sports. He was only like 32 years old, kind of a young guy in the industry at the time. And he kind of was looking around here, and he actually uncovered this bribery scandal with the editors of The Ring Magazine and Don King. And it actually led to the ABC canceling the tournament before it even started. And this was probably the first mainstream scandal for Don King, even though he had like criminal background and, you know, uh, allegations of murdering people beforehand, that was never mainstream in some fashion. This got like prime time television awareness because it was supposed to be on ABC. Uh, like the New York times ran uh, op-eds about this. Like it was big news, um, that, you know, the supposed journalistic institution of the sport, the ring magazine was found corrupted by a guy like Don King. Um, and obviously since then the ring magazine has been bought out by Oscar de la Hoya. Oscar de la Hoya promoter is the majority owner of the ring magazine. So it was the, the, the clear break, honestly, for when the ring magazine was a legitimate outlet and when it became a propaganda rag, for whoever was paying them at the time. Um, and this was in uh, 1976, just want to point that out. And this was obviously after ABC came back into the sport, um, after the Ali era, so they were reinvested into the sport, and they almost uh, dropped their subscriptions uh, or, or, or television rights for boxing as well, if it wasn't for Ali still fighting. And I've covered this before about how MMA owes a lot to pro wrestling, but... It's funny that this tournament had to get canceled because the rankings were constructed so that you could have the matchups you wanted. Whereas in MMA tournaments, that's just accepted. You're allowed to construct the matchups and just put whoever against the jobber. And nobody questions that, right? And I bring that up how when people are talking about MMA is not pro wrestling or it's all legitimate, just start with how MMA loves tournaments and how constructed and fake the tournaments are. And even to this day, the way the rankings are done. 
is completely constructed. The people that do the UFC rankings are hired by UFC to do the rankings. And then if they don't get the rankings they want, they just hire somebody else to give them the rankings they want. And even if they have a certain rankings that they want for a certain narrative, if they abandon that, they just ignore the rankings altogether and run with something else. So this is one area I will say that boxing is more legitimate than MMA because this wouldn't even be a scandal in MMA. Yeah, we're going to get to a number one, though. Uh, but uh, this and number two actually plays in number one because I want to uh, point this out, that this scandal is what allowed uh, the WBA and the WBC, which are the sanctioning bodies at the time, to really have the power that they do now. Because at the time, the Ring Magazine rankings and the, the Ring Magazine champion was, the, was viewed as the guy, the rankings. It was, it was never up for debate, to be quite honest, until this. Because now the ring lineal champion isn't thought of as much. So think about the whole Tyson Fury narrative with Deontay Wilder, how that, even boxing fans kind of scoffed at that. Why? It's because of cases like this. So we wouldn't get the IBF or the WBO, which were created after this, of course, un- unless we had the sanctioned bodies get sort of uh, infused with more power, more legitimacy. Um, and unfortunately, number one, if I can, uh, the IBF bribing scandal. The IBF started in 1984. Um, so it was the newcomer on the block, to be quite honest. It, was, it is the newest promotion, uh, sorry, sanctioning body um, that got recognized by the boxing community. And it's always quasi-recognized, by the way. Like, there's no like one person or agency that goes, yes, this sanctioning body is one that we accept. That's just not how it is. Like, there's the IBO, for example. There's the WBU. WBU. No one really accepts those, but they're around. Um, anyways, Robert Lee, who was the president of the IBF, uh, was investigated by the FBI for years and years and years. Um, and it finally came out due to Bob Arum disclosing it and testifying it to the FBI that he himself bribed the IBF. <laughs> that he paid $100,000 in 1995 uh, to have George Foreman not face his mandatory. So Bob Arum, who's still promoting, he has an ESPN deal, right? He admitted he bribed this sanction body to the FBI. He got no time, no slap on the wrist, nothing. Uh, uh, R- Robert Lee obviously was convicted on bribery charges. He served 22 months in prison, uh, only paid $25,000 in fines. Um, and this was... The smoking gun, I think a lot of people needed that the sanctioning bodies and their rankings are a pay-to-play scheme, okay? And if you even like listen to somebody like uh, Lou DiBella, who's a small-time promoter nowadays, but he's definitely uh, become uh, more acrimonious with the industry lately, and he's become more um, open about the industry. He talks about it in certain interviews you can look up. Um, you know, these sanctioning bodies even though they're in theory independent from promoters and networks are not that independent from promoters and promoters and networks. It's quite common. I don't know about small events, but anything that's a televised event you have, I think of the name of it. They, they actually have a name for this thing. Um, it's a, a dinner before the fights on Friday night after the weigh-ins and you get the promoters, the network execs and, uh, sanctioning bodies, uh, officials, and the commission. You get all of them in rooms together, sometimes with media officials or media members as well, like Lance Pugmire, 
uh, or Dan Rayfield or any of these people. And they all have dinner together. And who picks the tab? The sanctioning body. Um, it's often claimed that these dinners are the wheeling and dealing dinners of the sport. Um, also, we have conventions. Sanctioned bodies have yearly conventions. So they, you know, whether it's in Mexico or Dubai, they pick, you know, a exotic locale and they have a whole week convention with promoters, managers, fighters, and they come up with who's the mandatories, the rankings. They come up with everything, the new rules, if they need new rules or whatever it may be, new programs. Um, these are all industry um, get-togethers to, in some fashion, you know, rig the system. You know, like when we talk about like Davos, right, T- taking like politically and economically, like Davos being a get-together of rich millionaires and billionaires talking about economics, right? Um, there's that famed clip of the, it was a Norwegian economist that like uh, clown Tucker Carlson about it. I was reminded of that. Um, this is like that for boxing. Like this is like Davos. Like it is that connection point where all these people get together and it's a big club and we're not in it to use the, like the George Carlin expression, right? Like we're just not in that club. And if you're a small-time fighter, a small-time promoter, a small-time manager, you have to kiss so much ass to get in that club. Um, and like I said, the late 90s, I think it was 1998 or 1999, sorry, 1999 was when uh, it was officially uh, sentenced uh, Robert Lee with IBF. It was, the, like I said, the smoking gun that the sport and the fan base and the fighters needed in some fashion to know that this system is completely rigged. Um, but yeah, that is the top 10 scandals in boxing. Let me add some of my own thoughts. And also, I didn't know what your list was going to compile of until I listened to it now, because I didn't know if this was going to come up. But uh, Bugsy Siegel, the famed mafioso, was also a boxer, also involved to some degree with boxing itself. Yes, he was. And Frankie Carbo, going back to Frankie Carbo. He's the one who's allegedly uh, the the killer, the one who killed Bugsy Siegel. Some rumors go. That's right. I forgot to bring up that point. That's that's a, that's always a good fact to bring up. Yes, Frankie Carbo is alleged <laughs> to have killed Bugsy Siegel and sort of taken over the the the, the family as a result. Um, yeah, shout out to Frankie Carbo, man. <laughs> so the guy is legendary even outside of boxing. Absolutely. A note about the uh, sanctioning bribery. The reason why you won't hear about bribery almost ever with the UFC is because the UFC is also the sanctioning body. Yeah. <laughs> so why would they bribe themselves? They're also the commission. They also hire USADA, you know, and they also have lobbies to get the Ali Act stopped. So they're everything. So that's the thing about being a monopoly slash monopsony is when you become everything, you save money by not having to bribe anybody because you are everything. You're vertically integrated. Absolutely. Yes. Some other notable things, I think, that didn't make your list and I don't know where they would end up And this isn't even so much a scandal when it happened because it was uh, just such the norm at the time with the racism was Joe Lewis. Yes, yes. When he wanted to challenge James J. Braddock, Cinderella man, who they made this like great movie about how heroic he was. Joe Lewis, to fight him, had to give up 10% of his purse for his title fights to James Braddock. So even though Braddock lost, Braddock 
made a lot of money off of Joe Lewis's title defenses, over 20 of them. I'm not so sure about Braddock, but I know for sure Braddock's manager trainer was a huge racist. So I would not be surprised, let's be quite honest. Um, but no, that, that's definitely high up there. If I do like a top 20, that's there. But it's like, same with like Jack Johnson and like, yeah, uh, the, the whole man act uh, situation. Like, that was clearly um, a politically raci- racist motivated persecution on him because he was whooping every white guy's ass, mm-hmm. you know? Actually, speaking of uh, Jack Johnson, then that was part of the whole great white hope era. Mm-hmm. This is probably beyond just boxing. It's not even a boxing scandal, but says more about American empire and white supremacy. But during that great white hope era, America was so racist. They wanted Joe Lewis to lose to somebody white. And they were looking all over the world to find a white champion to beat him. But at the same time, they were so capitalist, so anti-communist that they probably could have found somebody in Russia, but they didn't want a Russian. So instead, they went with a Nazi, right? They went with Max Schmeling. So the whole backstory about that was that in that time, uh, promoters being pushed, I would say, maybe directly or indirectly by our own government to find a white champion, they were hesitant to find somebody from Russia, but were more than happy to find somebody from Nazi Germany. Absolutely. I mean, we know for a fact that uh, that there, obviously, to some fact, it was you know self-induced to the Soviet Union, but there is like no Russian champions you can find from 1917. <laughs> till 1992 <laughs> is about when we get the first Russian champion. And, you know, it's it's quite indicative of something, you know? Like, yeah. We get uh, the, the occasional Cuban champion, even with, you know, the height of Fidel Castro, right? Like, we get Cuban champions that, uh, that somehow get out, right? It happens. But for some reason, no Soviet champions. That just didn't exist. It just is not possible. I would even say during the Cold War, to some Americans still to this day, if you say uh, a Russian person is white, they might give you a weird look like, what? They would just think all communists or former communists, they can't be white. White means not communist, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, I do think like, it's interesting because I do think like the the average like US person that's just been like inundated with like propaganda, right? They probably separate like the Fidel Castro or, or like, Patrice Lumumba or Thomas Sankara from a Lenin or Stalin because they for some reason connect like Lenin and Stalin with Hitler you know what I mean like there's for the Soviet Union there's always this tried this attempted connection to fascism when in the global south that isn't attempted I I think it's just harder to attempt it Um, geographically Russia and Germany had a long history and maybe you can make comparisons I guess but it's, it's really not comparable um, but I, I, I do see that there's a difference in that. I have met people who actually do think, however they learned history in high school, their takeaway was that Nazi Germany and the Russians were on the same side. Yes. They somehow left with that. I've met too many people. And even if people are like, who are these people? Not that the class explicitly said they were on the same side. They said the Russians were allies of the US. But the general takeaway, I would say, for a lot of Americans was that Maybe that's not what was written in the book, but that's what they took away from it. Yeah. And then plus like the amount of like disinformation or just lack of education. Like my dad thought Karl Marx started the Russian revolution for fuck's sake, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'd explain to him like, no, Karl Marx wasn't even like alive during that time. Like Lenin was 13 when he died. Like it, they're just not comparable in any way. They're not contemporaries, you know, like 
just the amount of disinformation. It's, it's sad out there in, in the Imperial Corps. I've had so many people flex to me. Yeah, Americans, we're the heroes. We went into World War II to kick the Germans and the Russians' asses. I've heard that way too many times. Man, like if only like, I can just explain to them, like, look, the Russians begged, begged the U.S. and the U.K. to enter the Western Front. They begged them to open up that, uh, that side of the war. And what did we do? We went to Africa instead. And like, then went to like Sicily. You know what I mean? Like, we literally spent years fighting the, the Germans anywhere but France or Germany. <laughs> you know, like where, where they are. That's the movie Casablanca, right? <laughs> yeah. And, but that's only like from the middle, right? That was already like towards the middle of the war is when we got into those areas at all. Yeah, because we didn't enter the war until 1941. The war had already been raging for two years. And by the time the Russians had almost defeated Germany is when we got in. We're thinking about Stalingrad in 1943. That is the turning point of the war. That is the single biggest, greatest battle that the earth has ever seen. Okay, the amount of millions of men and women that were in a tiny city fighting it out in the sewers and the gutters was, it's, it's unimaginable, okay? That's why seven out of 10 Nazis were killed not by the, the U.S. or the U.K., but by the Soviet Union. Um, that happened a year, a whole year before we had D-Day. So the turning point of the war had already happened when we entered into France. But yet, think about it, Most people think of, D, uh, of World War II, they think of D-Day. They think of Saving Private Ryan. There's been a real concerted effort by Hollywood, by the State Department, to paint us as the victors and the heroes of World War One, when we were the Johnny Come Lately, like we were the guys that really strolled in late to the party and acted like we did everything when we didn't. And then we took those Nazi war criminals, put them in the U.S. space program, West Germany, put them in charge of NATO, let them flee to Latin America, use them actually as communist hunters in the global South. Yep. There's a lot of problems there. <laughs> and when people say boxing is not related to politics, come on. It's like a microcosm of these bigger events happening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I forget the Cuban boxer's name uh, in the Ali era. I forget his name. The one Ali said that uh, he was the greatest boxer of his era. Yes, yes. And Ali was always super gracious or super polite about him and just the cuban people as a whole and it was routinely i remember reading like articles at the time uh that like portrayed uh that cuban boxer as like uh, a menace as like an evil communist oh yeah teofilo stevenson yes teofilo stevenson thank you thank you thank you because he had an opportunity i think to defect or come to america and he didn't want to no he chose he chose to stay in cuba yes and he, people couldn't understand that so they thought he was brainwashed or blah blah mm -hmm. blah and he was just a proud communist because think about it, he in that era like he lived the revolution like he lived and saw the batista regime and how the latifundo lands were clearly like slave plantations in the modern day you think he was like in favor of like the u.s and like the mafia and U.S. corporations coming in and controlling the Cuban people? Fuck no, man. Um, like, the reason we saw such a mass exodus from Cuba, even, like, later on, the fact, is because the Cuban government went after drug trafficking heavily, the narco trade. 
Like, there's a reason why if you look at any sort of statistics and look at, let's say, like Bolivia or Venezuela's narco trade and compare that to Mexico or Colombia, which have for a long time been satellite states to the U.S., right? Their narco trade is in the basement level compared to those narco states. Why? Because of U.S. influence, because of the CIA. Like, let's just be honest about it. This is a great kind of way to see how boxing, really just combat sports in general, is a microcosm of just greater politics and also international politics, geopolitics. So Matt, thank you for coming on the show and giving us a brief history of boxing and also international politics. I appreciate it, man. Anytime. So where can people find you? Find me on social media at MahunterMCR on all social media platforms. You can find my content, my, my, my shows on Mixed Combat Radio on YouTube uh, and uh, podcast uh, sites and then obviously my political stuff you can find on trending now network i have two shows there general strike podcast which is obviously my live podcast and history of socialism which is the documentary series i'm working on which is the companion series to the book i'm writing so every time i write a chapter that first draft of the chapter is the script that i do and make a documentary episode on um so it's kind of a fun way to just you know work through the process uh and also like I've, and to also like, how should I say it? To like this process of learning about leftist ideology is a very continual process. It's a, it's a never ending process. Um, I think the benefit of this project is that as I am going through it, my opinions and the way I want to frame things have changed drastically. So, like, when I, I go back and watch the first episode I did on the, this documentary series. There's a lot I want to change. It's still really good, in my opinion, to you know, tap my back a little bit, but it's still things I want to shift. So I cannot wait to like get at the end of this process of the book and go back at the very beginning and sort of correct things and, and adjust things. Because um, I do recommend that, hey, if you're out there and you're into leftist ideology, please read theory. Like, I know we get a lot of people out there saying that reading theory is not important, but is absolutely vital, okay? You have to understand information before you can act on it. It's really important. Because if you're just acting without the knowledge, it's really easy to start acting as a reactionary, as an opportunist. You need that base, foundational level of a theory, of a worldview that's cohesive in order to act upon it. Or you can also act in a way that's just aimless. Yeah, absolutely. You know, customistic uh, in a way, you know, like um, how like uh, Fred Hampton talked about like the weathermen, right? Like mm -hmm. this process of social or political or whatever sort of revolution you want to talk about. It's, it's a process that is extremely difficult and is one that we have to understand that we're facing enemies from all sides and it's easier to understand who and what is the enemy who and what we are fighting who and what we are fighting for when you read history when you read theory i would even say for combat sports to really truly understand it you can't just understand it by reading stuff by combat sports writers, boxing writers, MMA writers, or just watching the sport or just going to your gym and just training. You need perspective outside of that to help you analyze combat sports. So meaning, let's say we're living in a simulation. 
then I can't use a ruler within the simulation to measure anything in the simulation, right? I have to step outside of the video game and then take something from real life to measure the video game. And I would say that's what theory and history is, is you're taking something from outside of that world to measure the world because anything from within that world would be unreliable. Absolutely. You know, and uh, to, to connect it back to politics, you know, like that's why you see this like rejection of like metaphysics and leftist ideology because it's not dialectical. It's not materialist in any way. Um, you know, like when we, when we view history, we have to analyze it from a historical materialist basis. Um, otherwise you get like this trivial pursuit attempt at like understanding history. Like you understand like dates and like maybe some people and like some events, but the connection points and how these things bleed into each other, the evolution of these things, um, the effects and consequences of these things. You never really understand if you're just understanding history from like flashcards. Like that's how I wanted to like describe, like the way we're taught in school here in the US. It's very much this person on this date did X, moving on. It's not really understanding what the consequences and effects of that material piece in history is and then how it connects to other historical moments. Uh, it's just, it's, like you said, it's a lens. Uh, it, you need a lens uh, 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 analysis, both in politics, in sports, in life. It's really important to have that objective lens. Well, it's like understanding boxing through Instagram highlights. Yeah. <laughs> if you just watch highlights, you would think Mike Tyson is the greatest boxer of all time. Yeah. And he is very good, but you need a lens, a boxing lens, like an analysis, like understanding how a system works, a systematic way of thinking about things to see how one punch connects to another punch, connects to another punch, and how those previous things all led to that final punch. Absolutely. Instead of just looking at the final punch. So I think it's bi-directional, at least for me, when I think about combat sports, it informs my view of material analysis and left politics and theory and history. And then those things also inform how I think about combat sports and vice versa. So it's this dialectical cycle. Yes. With that said, then, can you give us the name of that video you were talking about that went over the top five so people can look at it? I'll also put a link in the show notes. So if you want to look there as well. It's called the top five scandals in box and history, I believe is the name of it. It's at the very top of my YouTube page for Mixed Combat Radio, uh, if you want to find it. Cool. Thank you, Matt. No worries, man. I, I really appreciate it, man. And truly, anytime. And likewise, Sam, if you want to come on Mixed Combat Radio or General Strike Podcast or whatever, hey, open, open invite. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. 
tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.